All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Residential Spread. I'm Molly Slavin, and I am here today with Corey Gergen. How are you, Corey? Hi, I'm, I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I spent the day talking all of y'all's ears off about Northern Ireland, so I'm very much in my happy place. Uh, <laughs> also here is Eric Lewis. How are you, Eric? Uh, I'm doing well. I've also been enjoying the Northern Ireland talk while at the same time watching news out of Northern Ireland with concern. Yeah, on a, um actual serious note, that is very concerning, and I shouldn't have made light of it, and I apologize. Um, <laughs> I was not fishing for an apology, but... <laughs> no, I, I was very flippant. That was, you know, it's actually very concerning. And also here is Alex Edwards. How are you, Alex? I'm good. As the person who's been learning so much about Northern Ireland today <laughs> from you and Eric, um, I'm feeling great. I love to learn new and horrifying things about fascists. That's, you know... <laughs> Maybe the, maybe my next semester's class at Georgia Tech can just be new and horrifying things about fascists. Oh my God! Yes, you, do it. Can I can Finally. I audit? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, it, or it can be wasp uber ollies. Um, <laughs> that I sent everybody. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, we are term limited contingent faculty teaching humanities at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Like other schools, Georgia Tech has experienced massive disruptions, shifts, and changes due to the spread of coronavirus. We have been teaching and researching in a pandemic for over a year, and things are no more stable now than they were at the start. On this show, we investigate the sources and consequences of the policies that have led us here and discuss what it's like to navigate higher ed during a pandemic as members of the precariat. So, we've done it, you guys. We have solved money. And there's nothing else to talk about. We are ec- economists now. We are, no, no, like Emily Oster, we are not in that field, but we definitely know enough about that field to boldly proclaim that we know everything about that field. It's it's really shocking that money has vexed deep and smart thinkers for so long. And really all it took was like five reasonably invested humanity scholars and we solved it over like the course of six weeks yeah take that economist <laughs> i feel bad andy schwartz is an economist and i i mean no disrespect to him whatsoever and all disrespect to emily oster hashtag yeah. not all economists <laughs> yeah, my thing was very definitely about emily oster <laughs> <laughs> anyways all right so obviously we have not really solved money but we have reached the final episode of our mini series on college budgets Having now, over the past several episodes, having having had a chance to discuss austerity, endowments, athletic boosters, privatization, student fees, and other quote-unquote revenue streams, we're going to take this episode to pause and look back on the complicated role that money plays in shaping higher ed, especially during the coronavirus pandemic. What have we learned about how the almighty dollar shapes every aspect of university life, even things that don't seem related, like admissions policies? And how can we continue to follow the money, so to speak, given how hard schools are working to hide that trail from us? Uh, As always, we are going to start today with a temperature check. This is a statistic or a number that tells us something about our topic and will sort of help kick off the discussion. So our temperature today is... 13.6%. Um, 
and that is the percent by which international student enrollments at four-year U.S. colleges and universities has fallen uh, this past fall. Um, and this development, as Inside Higher Ed reported uh, earlier this week, uh, will have a negative impact on the sector's credit profile. Ooh, spooky. Um, according to bond ratings agencies. Um, what is the relationship between international student enrollments and the sector's credit profile? Well, Corey, excellent question. It is, of course, as we know, all about the money. Yeah. International students pay full tuition. So when you admit an international student, you essentially, you know, ink a, a near guarantee that the school is going to take cash in hand from that international student for the full sticker price of out-of-state tuition. Obviously, this is why schools recruit so heavily amongst international students, uh, because they are, you know, hoping to get that money, the tuition money, and not have to, you know, um, pay it back to the student in the form of scholarships or things like that. Um, so knowing that the schools are have so many fewer international student enrollments essentially tells a bond ratings agency like Moody's that the school is going to be taking in much less like cash in hand, like like liquid assets, right? Um, Moody's essentially looked at international student enrollment and said, you lost a bunch of like dedicated chunks of money and therefore like you're not going to have that cash influx uh, and that makes you know your credit rating go down in the same way that not having a job makes your credit rating go down no I'm totally out of my depth here why are you guys just letting me hang out here well I was gonna ask and silence. I'm very much out of my depth here too why what are the implications of a school's credit rating going down um, do any of you fine learned economists, um, can you walk us through that? <laughs> I mean, so when I think of credit ratings, I, of course, go back to uh, the recurrent fiscal cliff debacles of previous presidential administrations. I was really hoping at the time when those things were happening that I would never have to hear about standards and pores and AAA ratings anymore, but they keep coming back. So I think the point is that basically your rating changes both the amount of sort of borrowable money available to you and also the interest rate at which you can borrow said money. Yes. That makes I, sense. I think that's right. And I think it's a lot like a, a personal credit rating, right? So, you know, if your credit, like if me as an individual, if my credit is bad, um, then I have a harder time accessing loans, um, accessing, you know, future credit, right? Like, like, Get, having a, a, a credit card company or something like that tell me that I can spend X amount of money that I don't actually have as long as I'm going to pay it back later because they don't trust that you can pay it back later because your credit rating is bad. Uh, and then you pay a higher interest rate based on the fact that you're like how your credit, how bad your credit is. And I think it's basically the same uh, for schools and, and big um, 
companies? So if you're an institution with a bad credit rating, you are not able to, like, purchase land to build your live-work-play space. Right. Or any part Okay. I think that that's right, and I'm going to confidently say so because I'm an economist now. That's um, right. We, yeah. That's why I'm asking these incisive questions. Well, and, I mean, this is kind of a theme that sort of keeps coming back up, right, um, as – as these schools look to diversify their revenue streams um, and sort of like attract students um, through things like live, work, play spaces and um, uh, lazy rivers and, uh, you know, uh, those kinds of things, right? Um, their ability to do that is dependent on their credit rating and the amount of debt they have. And this is why um, PPPs become so attractive to these kinds of schools is because that's a way to, sort of have their cake and eat it too, right? That they can get that fancy new apartment style dormitory that they're, that the students that they want uh, are looking for uh, without taking on the big sort of uh, like debt onto their balance sheet that might scare away lenders going forward. Uh, and in fact, getting their already existing debt defeased, if I yes. remember correctly. Yeah. Correct. Right. And then remember the the problem becomes the conflict when the public institution does something that might harm the private company's credit rating, because that's what Corvius's right. issue was with uh USG. Right. Right. Yes. So basically it's all about this like fake clout metric. <laughs> That I, yeah, that's actually a very helpful way of thinking of it, Alex. Um, I like the clout metric, mm-hmm. um, and I think you have a real future in coining terms for the field of economics. <laughs> <laughs> but I, well, you know, one of the things I think we noticed when we were doing research for this episode is things that you think wouldn't necessarily affect the reputation of a school do, and that all gets funneled through how capital gets manipulated and spent. Yes, I think that's absolutely right on. Yeah, because it's not just right the issue of the credit rating, although that's certainly something that these schools, which are big. I mean, to my mind, like what I really learned from the budgets miniseries and especially from Kelly Grotke is amazing interview with us um, that was so smart and, and informative is that, you know, the schools are not primarily schools now in large part they are money laundering schemes <laughs> basically <laughs> hedge funds that teach classes they are hedge funds that teach yeah. classes my god molly we've needed you on so many episodes <laughs> i think it should be noted i don't know what a hedge fund is <laughs> <laughs> well neither do i so it sounded great um so what was i trying to say there um that that it's not just about credit ratings, but it's also about college rankings. And, you know, I have the, this funny sense where we to, to really sit down and do more digging into this, that your credit rating as a school probably affects your ranking, right? Hmm. Um, certainly things that we think shouldn't have anything to do with money affect school rankings. And the higher ranked you are, the more attractive you are to, you know, higher quality students. Um, which then is going to necessarily bring you more money. Right. And higher quality can be defined in a lot of different ways, right? It, it could be SAT scores, which helps with 
um, you know, your U.S. News and World Reports ratings. It could be international students and other students who pay a higher percentage of their tuition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, that's one of the other useful things I think about our starting place here is that not every student provides the same amount of value to the universities that admit them. Right. And in fact, a lot of the students who provide value to universities are the students who are rejected from the university. Because the other thing, of course, to keep in mind in all of this is it's not just about how many and what kinds of students a college enrolls. Their ranking and their, I mean, you can kind of think of their ranking as their like future earning potential, um, in, in some really scary and weird ways that I don't agree with at all, but that's where we are. The ranking is also dependent on how many students the school rejects. So what percentage of students are you letting in? If you're letting in a smaller percentage of students, you are a more, um, competitive school and therefore higher ranked. Which which ex- maybe explains why Duke this week um, is bragging about how low its admissions rates are for the upcoming academic year. Right. They have broken a record uh, in admitting only four point three percent of its regular decision applicants for the class of 2025, which is lower than 2024's class, which was six percent and 2023's class, which was five point seven percent. I think this is such a like misleading number because not that Duke is trying in some way to uh, obscure something here, but like it doesn't tell us how many students that actually is. So enrollment at Duke could have gone up, which, of course, this is one of these things about the, the coronavirus like manufactured crisis, right, is that schools all of a sudden were like, oh, God, enrollments are going to tank and then we're going to like be out of money. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and the international student stuff obviously tells us that that is happening to some extent, but it's not happening evenly across the board. I think we've talked about it previously on the show. Um, it's hitting community colleges harder than it's hitting private four-year colleges and, and especially elite private four-year colleges. Hmm. So that, you know, record low percentage of students admitted to Duke doesn't tell us whether or not they're enrolling fewer students. It tells us that more students applied and got rejected, which again is a way to game the ranking system that U.S. News, U.S. Nope, <laughs> I don't have that in my vocabulary. Um, U.S. News and World Report, right? Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and you know what? I actually was recently I had turned on the uh, Netflix documentary Operation Varsity Blues about the college mm. admissions scandal. And that was one of the things that that they mentioned really early on is that these schools, once rankings were invented, then these schools started figuring out ways to game the ranking mm-hmm. system and having a big endowment is part of that. Rejecting a lot of students is part of that. Having amenities like an LSU shaped lazy river is part of that. Mm-hmm. Having a successful athletics department, having a team that, that, you know, makes national broadcasts is part of that. All of these things um, feed into this this uh, economy of clout. Yeah. And I will just I just to sort of uh, regarding the sort of what the admissions class looks like. Um, they 
that 4.3% of regular decision applicants that were accepted amounts to 2,014 high school seniors. Um, of course, they don't know how many of those will accept. Uh, their target class size has stayed constant at 1,720. Um, but it sounds like last year enrollment was down a little bit because more students than usual took a gap year. Um, oh, so yeah, okay. we don't know. We don't know what the enrollment's going to ultimately look like, but their target class size has not changed. And then the other thing that a school like Duke can do when it's only admitting 4.3% of regular decision applicants is it can create a very large waiting list and can go down the waiting list in a way that like less competitive schools can't. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Another thing that I always think about when we think about the U.S. News and World Report rank rankings is that rankings also seems to be keeping U.S. News and World Report alive. Like, mm. U.S. News and World Report is putting out very little of substance except for this <laughs> thing, um, which yes. I think is genuinely very interesting. Like, it has really – U.S. News and World Report as a journalism outlet has a really sustained interest in keeping this going. Like, they found a niche, and they have to stick to it. Um and then the colleges and the universities obviously have a vested interest in it, in keeping it going as well, right? Yeah, and that actually that like symbiosis triggered my memory of what I wanted to say, which was um, that the other thing that's happening is uh, because these schools are leaning into um, these like low acceptance rates, students are applying to more and more schools. Um, I, I don't have to for this, but I, I do have a Twitter thread that I saw yesterday uh, where people were comparing the number of schools they applied to, to, you know, maybe a decade or two decades ago, uh, to the number of schools that students are applying to today. Um, and, you know, it's like high school seniors today are applying to more schools than I applied to PhD programs when I applied for PhD programs. Um, Nerd, go ahead. Can you say what that number is? I, I, like I say, I don't have a number, but it's like, I've seen people saying like 15, 20, um, my, my wife is a high school English teacher and she sort of reports similar things to me. And one of the things that's facilitating that, which is helpful to everyone, except perhaps the students who are panically applying to all these schools is the common app, which is a little bit of weird ed tech, right? Where of you can just course. fill out one app, uh, and not all schools, but many schools, um, use this system so you can just you can just put your data into this um, into this common app and then as long as you can pony up the application fees at all of these various schools you can just target them with your information directly and it's just like a tap of a button you can send your stuff and then the school can add you to their statistics and take your 50 bucks or whatever they charge for an application fee. This is actually really interesting. I, I definitely wanted to like hit on how the common application has reshaped the way that, that current high school students are applying to schools. Mm -hmm. But I didn't think about how it's also essentially a huge data harvesting project. And I'm wondering <laughs> now, like who owns that data? You know, who, yeah. who runs the common application? Like who is, owns that? It's a nonprofit. Uh, I'm on I'm on Wikipedia. Uh, it is a nonprofit NGO. It's a classified as a public charity. It's located in Arlington, Virginia. Okay. Well, so so given that it's a nonprofit, I'm I'm now thinking like it's not like 
in structure, which owns Canvas, right? And right. it's literally like publicly valued at billions of dollars because it has all this student data. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, that is an interesting kind of side effect of, you know, the common application has certainly made a lot of colleges much easier to apply to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw the same thread that you did where, you know, it seems that current high school seniors, juniors and seniors and, and people who are thinking about college right out of high school right now are like, you know, literally they're applying to as many schools as they can afford to. Um, and mm-hmm. I have also seen in that 20 range. Yeah. Um, I applied to two undergraduate schools 20 yeah. years ago. I I applied to three and one of them was an out of like out of state for me, but like where I'm from. And I knew that I would never actually go there. I just wanted to apply. Yeah. And I also, <laughs> you know, to, to really like take it back um, for all the 18 to 25 year olds who listen to this show, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, re- I have distinct memories of like putting my whole packet together in a manila envelope and writing, mm-hmm. making sure I wrote the school's address like as legibly as possible. And then literally taking it to the post office and yeah, like, yeah. yeah. it in a couple cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And, and being, you know, having the, the, the person working at the post office being like, Oh yeah, it's college application season again. Right. Because there was like, you know, so many <laughs> of us, like so many 17 and 18 year olds who were like trundling along to the post office and going like, here, please take my, future hopes and dreams yes yes um yeah with including like uh hard copies of recommendation letters from teachers that like they like signed the seal of the envelope (laughs) on and things like that oh yeah um so further further research by which i mean scrolling down the wikipedia page uh the coalition application was created by a selective consortium of colleges and universities known as the Coalition for Access, Affordability, and Success. In September 2015, over 150 U.S.-based universities participate. The coalition application was created as a more, quote, holistic, end quote, application and includes, quote, lockers, end quote, where students can create a portfolio starting in the ninth grade. Um, So that clears everything up. Well, I mean, it does suggest to me then that, like, what, whoever, you know, quote unquote, owns that data now, it certainly is benefiting these schools that were on yes. board with it. Right. Because, of course, it can artificially drive up their um, application numbers. Uh, the other piece to keep in mind here this year, and I think one of the things that might be going on with Duke is mm. that the uh, SAT and ACT um Tests had a lot of interruptions this year. Like they were like Mm -hmm. several testing sessions were canceled. It was really difficult to actually like sit for the SAT and ACT. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a result, a lot of schools, I think Duke included, someone's got to check me on that, but you know, I just say these things. And then (laughs) I assume that some tenured faculty member who never speaks to me otherwise will come along and try to correct me. Uh, No. Impossible. <laughs> that would never happen. Um, yes, Duke Duke is is test optional for fall 2021. Right. So a lot of students who previously, like in a previous year, would have thought like, well, I don't have the SAT score to even apply to Duke, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to get in. They this year are like, 
hell yeah, I'll shoot my shot for Duke. Right? Like, I don't have to give them an SAT score. This might be my chance. Um, and right. sidebar, right, like, we shouldn't use those standardized tests anyways. <laughs> right. All schools should be test optional or, you know, no test scores required at all times. Um, but that's another podcast <laughs> episode. <laughs> Miniseries. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing, though, I, I think this is really interesting. We read this week, we read this really great Atlantic cover story um, about private schools, private um, K-12 schools. And it's making the, the test optional thing is making stuff really hard for rich parents. <laughs> Which I love anything that makes stuff hard for rich people. Yes. Um, but yeah, their kids are now having to, you know, compete with a lot more like riffraff um i I thought if i thought this article was really interesting i don't necessarily have a whole lot more to say about it but i thought that it was really illuminating in that a lot of these elite private schools and we're talking like you know andover and exeter and the dalton Mm -hmm. school and and those sorts of um uh, nightingale bamford nightingale bamford (laughs) 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 yeah (laughs) yeah um uh, oh, what was the other one? It was um, Harvard Westlake. Yeah, that's the that, one the author taught at. That's like in LA, I think. Yeah. For some reason, a lot of Harvard Westlake grads go to Emory um, for reasons I don't know that I understand. But well, a lot of those elite private school students, like they're they have like cohorts that go to the same school like they like kind of bundle schools like bundle admit basically like um a bunch of students regardless one of the things i thought was so interesting and and of course we're primed to think about money right now and college budgets and school budgets more largely um one of the things i found so interesting was that these elite private schools that are teaching k-12 students have a lot of the same kind of money issues that the elite colleges and the private colleges have. Um, So, you know, tuition at Dalton is $54,000 a year, um, Mm -hmm. which is uh, very comparable to sending your kid to a private college. Um, But they also do things like run these capital campaigns where they're constantly asking people, you know, they're diversifying their revenue streams. They're constantly asking the parents to pony up larger and larger sums of money, right, Um, in the hopes that with that money they will build some new amenity that then will appeal to more and more rich people. Um, And you go to one of these, you go to Nightingale Bamford because – you want a guarantee that your child um, is going to eventually get into Smith or Princeton or Harvard Mm -hmm. or, you know, name another Stanford. Um, A a lot of these same schools that are involved in the the Operation Varsity Blues uh, college admission scandal, actually. Mm. (laughs) Um, I don't necessarily have like a point to that. I just was, it was interesting to me to see how all the things that we have talked about, um, in in higher education budgets also seems to be replicated at least at the elite private school level. Mm-hmm. And uh, among other things to like bring it back to COVID is that the parents at these schools push really, really hard for in-person instruction, right? Yeah. Uh, because there is this like, 
the sense that they're missing out, right? If, and I don't, I don't have the names of these schools at the ready like you all do, but right, like <laughs> if, if the $60,000 a year school down the street is in person, then my $55,000 a year school should also be in person, right? Because otherwise those students are going to have a leg up uh, at Harvard because my private SAT tutor is no longer helpful. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, Dalton was the school that wanted to, the pre, the head of school for Dalton uh, wanted to stay online for this year because mm-hmm. of coronavirus. And then the other uh, elite Manhattan schools, Trinity uh, was going to open and Nightingale, Bamford and Chapin and Spence were all going to open. And so mm-hmm. the Dalton parents like lost their minds and right. basically mutinied because of exactly what you said, Corey, that, that somehow their children were getting left behind. And this, again, we're hearing this language of like students and children getting left behind and, and learning loss. And they're losing this whole year of learning and all of this stuff. And I have further thoughts on this, but I'm going to let Eric talk. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to jump in just because, um, Oh, this is, again, referencing to previous things we have learned in this mini-series. I was thinking a little bit back to the history of housing P3s. And in talking about this, I'm drawing from uh, an article by Kevin McClure et al. that we cite in that episode as well. Um, in this article, they trace the 50-year process of the privatization of academia and this withdrawal of public funds from mm-hmm. colleges. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason that this shift occurred is that there was the sense that what college offers is this private good to private consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, policy, and here I'm quoting, policymakers called on public institutions to increase the number of students pursuing and earning a bachelor's degree in order to promote U.S. economic competitiveness. Hmm. And I remember at the time finding that tension confusing, the fact that this was something that was viewed as a social good to a certain extent, but was also framed as this private good and thus unworthy of public funds. And thinking about it, I think that might relate to this function of private education and higher education that we've always been aware of, which is the maintenance of class distinctions through generations. Rich people send their kids to these schools so that they will get the jobs that will maintain them as rich people. Yeah. And maybe, oh, yes. And, 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 And maybe part of privatizing education is trying to minimize that competition with the riffraff that we've been talking about in terms of, if these are private expensive goods, if they are this exclusive, it makes it that much more likely that only the people who have been brought up to be in this from the first place will be able to access it. Yes. I think that that is absolutely right on as analysis. And it reminds me of, I got excited because it it reminded me of the thing I actually was trying to dovetail to, which is that I'm reading this book right now called Steal As Much As You Can by Oh, gosh, I'm not going to remember the author's name. We'll put it in the show notes because I don't have it in front of me. But it's about um, the the ne- essentially the neoliberal culture wars uh, in the UK. Um, and this is like the author. Hold on. I did find it. 
Natalie Ola. That's O-L-A-H. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But her her thesis is really that, you know, neoliberalism was able to expand and reshape our entire world because of the cultural work that it did. And a lot of that cultural work was about reinstituting or or maintaining class boundaries. And um, that a huge part of the project was this idea between like you had to make a distinction between the aspirational working class and the non-aspirational working class so that you valued the only people, the only working class people who could be valued were the people who wanted to climb out of their quote unquote poverty. Mm. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, Tony Blair stood up and, and said like the three most important things we can focus on are education, education, education. Um, and, and the UK has a really similar trajectory in terms of like this process of, increasing enrollments and and funneling more and more students into higher education for economic competitiveness, but also for this kind of maintenance of class boundaries. Because if you just want a working class job that pays a living wage uh, and your, your high school diploma, and that's enough for you, right, this culture war has essentially like instituted an ideology or developed an ideology that says that like, you know, you're trash, basically. Uh, and like, God forbid, you know, like everyone should want to have their ladder up to the middle class. Um, and it's all a huge part of neoliberalism, which we come back to time and time again. To remind myself of this whole rant, I wrote down Tony Blair and I put an exclamation <laughs> point in my planner. And now um, next week I'm going to get to this and I'm going to be very confused. <laughs> As to why you were so excited by Tony Blair. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but I think you're really on to something, Eric, about that, the importance of keeping out the riffraff, right? And in this case, we're, we have tiers of riffraff. So for the, <laughs> for the ultra rich, the riffraff is anyone who's upper middle class and down. Um, and then for the upper middle class, the riffraff is anyone who's lower middle class and down. And for the middle middle class, you know, it's the not what Natalie Ola would call the non-aspirational working class, right? The the mm-hmm. people who, you know, are happy with manual labor jobs. Like, how fucking dare they? Which is ridiculous, right? I'm not. She makes a really great point, which is that this is all bullshit. And it's like a really pernicious ideology that has taken hold and that we need to undo. Like I'm a firm believer. We teach college. I am a firm believer that not everyone needs a college education. That is not the right route for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you're right, Alex. It's not turtles all the way down. It's (laughs) feelings of superiority (laughs) all the way down. But, but if, if we perpetuate that idea then we get more people applying to our colleges and then we reject more people. And then we look better in the U S news and world reports. And then we can admit only the students who um, make us look good either through high SAT scores or through high tuition payment rates or whatever. Right. And then we can grow the endowment, which is Mm going to make money for our hedge fund manager friends. And we as administrators and, and, you know, executives of the various universities can demand higher and higher salaries. On Twitter this week, I went through 
some of the uh, comparing like the salary trajectories over the past 10 years or so of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, faculty in higher education in the United States, staff and quote unquote executives, which is like who we would think of as administrators. So the president and provost and vice provost of, you know, sitting around on your ass writing blog posts. And it's really clear. A dream job, to be honest. A dream job. Yeah. Oh, listen, if I could. No, I wouldn't. I don't. <laughs> we would have to understand credit ratings better than we currently do. Yeah. Well, if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I think we would have to make convincing noises. Wait, that's, uh, that's a really good point, which I'm not great at. So I'm out on this dream. Yeah, I think my face would eventually give me away. <laughs> I would make like a, a fake vomiting face. <laughs> Someone was talking about diversifying revenue streams and they would figure out. <laughs> um, they just think you were expressing disgust, disgust at the riffraff. Right, yeah. Ugh, pores Ugh. make me want to puke. Um, that's not true. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, where was I going with that? Oh, right. Yes. So, you know, executive level um, administrators of colleges and universities in the United States over the past 10 years have only seen their salaries steadily increase, whereas almost every other worker I could find has taken a salary cut at some point in the past 10 years. It's not all a sort of doom and gloom, like the trajectory is just pointed downwards, but it's not consistent growth. And it is pointedly consistent growth when you look at executives, right? So part of all of this, the the this huge kind of program of the the money and the clout and the class boundary maintenance and all of it is really about, you know, making sure that these executives have a whole field to go into and convince people that they deserve to make, you know, the six and seven figure salaries. Rich people keeping each other rich. Yeah. Yeah. Do do we have time for a quick Endicott rant? It's semi-related to what you're saying. Listen, I always have time for a rant. Okay. So uh, just one more um, example uh, about the relationship between budgets and enrollment and COVID. Um, Inside Higher Ed published this week a glowing uh, account of Endicott College's uh, financial success over the course of the uh, pandemic. Endicott College is a small liberal arts college in, I believe, Massachusetts, but somewhere up there in the Northeast. Um, Is there really a difference? Where the rich people congregate. Where the rich people go. Um, uh, The lead... Fairly innocuous, Endicott College is in a better financial position now than it was before the pandemic, according to its president. After one of higher education's most most difficult years marked by enrollment declines, furloughs, layoffs, and steep budget cuts, Endicott's success stands out. How did they succeed? We get a number of bullet points in this piece. Number one, enrollment and retention, which remained up and or steady, uh, but also as the uh, author of the piece points out, the college is earning more tuition revenue per student, uh, which means that their student body is uh, far more wealthy and mm. overwhelmingly more white mm. than their competitive schools. So they're 
paying less uh, financial aid to the students that they are enrolling. Um, their discount rate averages 38 uh, percent, while the larger average for private nonprofit four years is 51.2 percent. They're also 81.2 percent white and only 16 percent of their students are eligible for the federal Pell Grant. Um, other ways they've managed to shore up their finances during this difficult year, diverse revenue streams, by which they mean it's a popular wedding venue. <laughs> and they made enough money. It's unclear what how long they paused weddings during the pandemic in from the article, but they made enough last year that they were able to, like, use some of that money to offset costs for, like, COVID mitigation. Uh, they also have taken in $2 million in federal aid from the CARES Act and expect another $5.6 million. Some of that has to go to students in need, but nonetheless, uh, that's a healthy chunk of change from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And then saved for last for some reason is successful fundraising. Uh, the, um, the rise of the um, pandemic coincided with the end of a five-year fundraising push by Endicott that raised $67 million which was $17 million more than they had anticipated. There's lots of quotes in the article about how unexpected this success was coming so soon after the recession. Um, but just like their student population uh, is the least likely group in the United States to be affected by coronavirus, uh, this population is the least likely to be affected by that recession, at least in any kind of long-term way. Um, I, I don't know how many of you read this article, but do, does anybody want to guess what they have decided to do with these unexpected windfalls over the past five years? Are they going to build something? Oh, no. Really? They have put it. Really? Yeah, they have put it. Their endowment has grown from $35 million just over a decade ago to over $100 million. And of course. Be, because they didn't dip into it for the pandemic, uh, the like gains in the market over the past year means their endowment now sits at one hundred and twenty million dollars. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, I want to be I want to be fair to the piece. The piece uh, is constantly mentioning all the benefits that Endicott has going for it in terms of how white and well off it's both its um, donor base and its student base are. But it nonetheless ends with a lengthy quotation from someone at Moody's who says, <laughs> of course. who says that while sure, a school like Endicott has lots of benefits already, perhaps schools without that, those built in benefits can still learn from this quote, they, those schools who don't have these inborn advantages, quote, perhaps have not over time evolved as much as they could have in terms of meeting what students and parents and families want from college, end quote. Uh, that makes me as mad as the news that we put into the run sheet that Marquette is um, laying people off and not renewing um, non-tenured faculty and at the same time that they're doing this, they've announced a $750 million uh, capital campaign. Yeah. Which the Atlantic piece, which is by, I should have looked, Caitlin Flanagan, also brings up, right, the, the ever-present capital campaign. Mm -hmm. Oh, you guys, I'm not sure. I don't even know how to say this. 
I think higher it is a scam. <laughs> We're all Trump University. <laughs> hedge fund, and I'm pretty sure hedge funds are scams. So as, you're right. yeah, as I, I think Molly's point about schools being hedge funds that occasionally teach classes, like the teaching classes, is like slowly becoming the greenwashing. Yes. For these uh, hedge funds, but I I'm usually the one who brings in the despair, but like. One thing I think that's been useful about the past few weeks, like talking through this with you all and like learning about these things with you is I think it changes these realizations changes need to like can change the ways that we make our arguments for what we do. Mm. Um, like the other yesterday, I think, Alex, you uh, were talking on Twitter about um, our retired provost's dream of AI teachers. Mm hmm. Um, and it was getting a lot of, I, like rightly, it was getting a lot of attention on Twitter. People were sort of horrified by this uh, bleak vision of education. But I think it's useful to think about the fact that, like, it's not that the provost doesn't realize that this would be bad for education. The provost doesn't care. Right. It's cheaper. Right. And that's what matters. And I think that, like, recognizing that can be helpful for us as we, like, think about ways to challenge and contest and rethink these things. because like. Ed being educated by a human being should not be like only accessible to uh, stu what is, students of the Harvard. What the hell is the name? Harvard of Westlake. Thank you. Nice it should not only be <laughs> like, right? Yes, I completely agree. Yeah. And I think that uh, one of the things we haven't gotten a chance to talk about and we're running low on time, but you know, the departments that often get get hit the hardest and cut the worst when this happens, and particularly after the Clinton Bush Obama era, are humanities departments. And mm -hmm. I think it's really important for humanities scholars not to pretend that they're economists, although you can get a guaranteed laugh out of it. But <laughs> it's important for humanities scholars to actually really understand the business aspect of things and the financial mm -hmm. aspect of things and the way that that extractive capitalism is operating at uh, you know, in higher ed across the country so that we can make more targeted and pointed arguments. Like we have the skills and the tools as humanity scholars to mm -hmm. call bullshit on these people and their ideologies. Right. And, and I don't know yet that there's been enough of that. I think we need to do more of it. So like in order to, for one thing, protect our field, but for another thing, you know, protect the idea that, 20 years from now, college will still be for more people than just the students <laughs> who've graduated from Dalton. Yeah. So we've solved, we haven't just solved money. We've solved higher ed and we've solved, um, you know, the, the defunding of the humanities. Done. We offer Good. PhDs in economics now. We do. Oh, I'm coming for Emily Oster's job. I'm updating my CV as we speak. I'm not. Right. I, I in no way want Emily Oster's job. Let me just be clear about that. But I also think that she should stop pretending to be a public health expert. She's a fucking economist. No one should have Emily Oster's job as, as Emily Oster understands her job. You know, I think what her kids go to one of those fancy private elite private schools. Oh, very definitely. She's she is one of those parents from the Atlantic story. One hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Well, good work, everybody. <laughs> now, all of our listeners also now have degrees in economics.
<laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Yes, th- there's no in-person ceremony this year due to COVID restrictions, but <laughs> the degree Sorry, is I'm, in the mail. I'm especially amused by that because I don't think I'll ever in-person graduate from grad school. <laughs> they keep canceling Notre Dame ceremony and my parents oh, are no. really upset about it. Oh, oh, no. about that, Eric, I'm so sorry. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> but I will say, uh, I feel like we have concluded this miniseries on a surprisingly hopeful note in terms of the things we've learned, the potential actions that those things we've learned open up for us. Uh, and that was a really pleasant surprise. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I also, I just very quickly want to redact what I said. Your Your diploma is not in the mail, listeners, but if you pay your graduation fee of 150 US dollars, then it will be in the mail. That's right. You have to pay your (laughs) commencement fee. (laughs) All right. Bye, you guys. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Sorry. <laughs> I was I was going to say we're recording, but of course you can see that. Every time. Okay. <laughs> it's tough. Let's just give me a second. Okay. Yep. Yep. All right. Hi everybody and welcome to Residential Spread.